Coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. If you asked any cardiologist, any well-meaning cardiologist, you know, do you think blood sugar is important? Do you think triglycerides are important? Do you think, you know, abdominal obesity is important? They'll all say yes. I mean, they, they all sort of agree it's, it's in there. But the way practices are structured, where you don't have much time with your patient, when there are financial incentives to your bigger medical group to get X number of people on statins, to get, you know, LDL below a certain number, those are are predetermined goals that's going to get your medical group paid more money. Now, if that's not a perverse incentive in in medical care, I don't know what is. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interview the medical director of Diet Doctor and low-carb cardiologist, Dr. Brett Schur. We discuss the advantages of living a low-carb lifestyle, along with the truth about statins and LDL cholesterol, lifestyle tips to prevent heart disease, ways to reduce hunger, animal versus plant proteins, and his one tip to get your body back to what it once was. Really enjoyed meeting Dr. Bretcher, and his interview was hard-hitting and lots of great tips. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Thanks so much for listening. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin, and I have Dr. Brett Sheron. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here today. Yeah, I um, love having you on. Uh, you're a podcast host. I'm a big fan of it. Diet Doctor podcast, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I really enjoy doing that. You know, I don't know how you feel about your podcast, but for me, it's like any opportunity to sit down and chat with all these amazing, interesting people. Like, I don't care if anybody listens or not. I'm just having a great time talking to all these people. And I'm just thankful that so many people find it interesting enough to tune in and listen. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. It's been it's been great. Just the networking, meeting new people and uh, like minded individuals. Uh also have a book, right? Author of the, uh, your best yeah. health ever. I was checking that out. When did you write yeah. that? What year did you write? that? Oh boy. That was a number of years ago. Uh, maybe 2018, 2017. I got, I got, you, you surprised me with that one. I got to go back and check. <laughs> it was a few years ago, but I think it, I think it still holds up. You know, it's really just about the pillars of a healthy lifestyle that are not talked about enough or maybe overly simplified and therefore really not really talked about in a helpful enough way, because when you boil things down to make them so simple, they just so many times don't really resonate or stick with people. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes getting into the details and the nuances really make a difference. If you can, you know, if the person can find what really connects with them and really give them their aha moment to help them along their health journey. So that, yeah, that's sort of was the motivation for that book. Yeah. And, uh, I'm curious what got you into, I, you know, I, I know you're a cardiologist and mm-hmm. like by trade, right. Uh, maybe give the audience a little bit of a background of, you know, what got you into low carb and podcast yeah. hosting and everything mm-hmm. else. Sure. Yeah. It's been an interesting journey to be sure. Um, you know, I started, I was always interested in prevention. So my, my cardiology fellowship was a combined um, prevention and general cardiology. So I just still did my time in the hospital and the cath lab and doing the echoes and the stress test. And then I had an extra focus on prevention. Mm. Then I got into the, you know, quote unquote, real world. Um, and I was excited. I was going to really put my mark on, you know, cardiac prevention and really help my patients. And my training program was an Ornish style program. You know, it was a great, um, 
comprehensive program, getting people to quit smoking, get them exercising, get them managing their stress, get them in, in good social environments. And then of course there was the very low fat, um, vegan based diet. And so when I got out into the real world and tried to implement all these strategies, boy, was I just, I was struggling. And, uh, I noticed my patients were struggling and I'm embarrassed to admit how long it took me to figure out why, but, you know, I was just so sure that this was the right approach because it's what I had been taught, what all the journals said, what's all, you know, all the, the, the big cardiologists, um, and well-known cardiologists were saying. So, um, it took me a little while to sort of realize this wasn't the right approach. So my first step was to say, you know what, I just need to spend more time with my patients. So in addition to my general cardiology job, I started a wellness center, boundless, health, boundless health with a good friend of mine who is an amazing health coach. Um, but luckily, luckily for me, he's also very knowledgeable about ketogenic diets. And so on a couple of our challenging patients, he suggested, Hey, how about we try a ketogenic diet on this guy? And of course, my first response as a well-trained cardiologist was, what are you crazy? I don't want to kill the guy. Mm, right. Um, right. but then he, to his credit, he just, you know, kind of looked at me and says, well, have you looked into it? Have you looked at the science? Have you read the studies? And, and I had to admit I hadn't, you know, I was just going on what I'd been trained to do. Um, so from there, it opened up a whole Pandora's box. Once I started realizing there's actually quality medical literature about low carbon keto diets, and this was back in, you know, eight years ago or more. Yeah. Um, and then of course the number of books that were out and it was like, huh, there's this whole new approach that we don't talk about because we're so ingrained and we're so biased against dietary fats, but that's all been misplaced. And, you know, I've said it before. So many people have said it. Once you see the benefits of low carb diets, you can't unsee them. And my approach has never been that it's like the one diet for everybody, or it's what everybody needs to focus on, but boy, does it need to be an option for people. And the fact that it isn't even an option in so many medical practices to me is just a crime because there's so many people we could be helping. So that led me down this path of, of low carb diets. Um, and then I really just wanted to spread the word. Like one of my biggest passions is, is educating clinicians, because I know as a, you know, very well-trained preventive cardiologist, I was never taught this stuff. So what about an internist who really isn't focused on nutrition and exercise and lifestyle or other cardiologists, other endocrinologists, they're hardly taught this at all either. So really that's where the podcast started to come from is I wanted to reach the average person and say, look, here's a cardiologist who believes in this and wants to show you how to implement it into your life appropriately, but also listen, clinicians, here's a cardiologist saying that this is an option and you should be considering it. So that led me down the podcast route. And fortunately for me, uh, the folks at Diet Doctor, I guess, were a fan of my podcast, the Low Carb Cardiologist podcast. So then we got together and, uh, and now I'm the medical director of Diet Doctor and run the Diet Doctor podcast. And I've been for a little over three years now. So it's, uh, it's been a great journey. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and as a cardiologist, obviously you're not, you're, you're training, you're not get, getting taught the things that you learned after school, correct? Like this is something yeah. that you went above and beyond. Most cardiologists now aren't getting taught uh, diet lifestyle, uh, trainings, correct? Yeah. You know, in your general cardiology practice or just, sorry, your general cardiology fellowship, you may get a little bit of nutritional, um, education, but it's all plant-based, you know, it's all vegan. It's all low fat. That's still their traditional teaching. Right. Um, there's very little teaching about improving metabolic health through, through low carb lifestyles. There's, you know, the focus is still squarely on LDL, with much less of an emphasis on, you know, triglyceride to HDL ratio, metabolic health, blood sugar, hyperinsulinemia, that stuff is not really discussed um, in cardiology training. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's, it's, it, yeah, it's sort of sad in the sense, because I even saw this with my dad recently, like he just got put on a statin. I was like, well, I was like, let me just see your blood work. I'm curious because what was the reasoning? And they didn't even, and I'm curious your thoughts about this. Cause I know you talk about it quite a bit is, um, you know, they just look at total cholesterol and LDL. Oh, that's high. Okay. You should be on a statin. And really they, it is more, there's more detailed nuance to it than just looking at those numbers, um, as you know, as a total, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh you know, we're, we're very much cardiology is very much in the, um, focus of LDL, no question about it at the, at the expense of other, other markers. Now, if you asked any cardiologist, any well-meaning cardiologist, you know, do you think blood sugar is important? Do you think triglycerides are important? Do you think, you know, abdominal obesity is important? They'll all say yes. I mean, they, they all sort of agree it's, it's in there. But the way practices are structured, where you don't have much time with your patient, when there are financial incentives to your bigger medical group to get X number of people on statins, to get, you know, LDL below a certain number, those are are predetermined goals that's going to get your medical group paid more money. Now, if that's not a perverse incentive in, in medical care, I don't know what is. Mm. Um, so that really sort of skews the practice towards LDL and statins so much more. And look, statins have their role. I still prescribe statins. I am not in the camp that so many on the internet are that statins are poison and should be avoided in all people. But, you know, to use a terrible analogy, they should be used like a, a, uh, um, a pinpoint rifle with a laser sight, not a shotgun to get, you know, everybody under the, under the sun. So, um, I, so I think they have their part. Um, and LDL is definitely correlated with cardiovascular disease and involved in the process of cardiovascular disease. There's no question about that, but to say it is the number one, most important thing that is causative of heart disease, I think goes a bit too far, especially when you're talking about, you know, you look at these, some of these studies that show, the association between risk factors and heart disease and LDL or even better ApoB are definitely on that list, right? They have an association, but things that are just way higher association are high blood pressure, type two diabetes, metabolic syndrome, the lipoprotein insulin resistance score, you know, smoking, family history. Those are all way up here and LDL is down here. So right. it's not that you should ignore LDL, but I really think our focus needs to be turned elsewhere to look at the whole picture and LDL is a part of that, and then put it into context, you know, an LDL in the setting of metabolic dysfunction, low HDL, high triglycerides is a different risk factor than LDL in the setting of very good metabolic health, normal blood pressure, um, low triglycerides, high HDL, you know, those are two completely different scenarios that should be addressed differently, not across the board, LDL equals X equals statin. That's where I think we really break down. Right. It's almost like too much of a simplistic viewpoint. <laughs> if you just look at that one marker and say, okay, yeah. you know, let's, let's put that individual on a statin because they have high LDL. <clears throat> what about like small and large particles, not mm -hmm. to get too down too much down this rabbit hole, but, but yeah. there are tests, right. That can sort of, um, give you an idea, a little, get a little more into the details of it. Right. So your standard lipid profile that most people get at their doctor's office is not going to tell you anything about the size of the LDL particles. You can use triglycerides and, and HDL as sort of a surrogate. You know, if the triglycerides are low and the HDL is high, chances are um, your particles are more of the large particles. But to really know, you need to test it. You need to yeah. test the size of your particles. And it's very clear that the small, denser particles are, have a higher association with cardiovascular risk. 
That is clear. Now, the question is, is it the particles themselves or is it because that, that setting is associated with metabolic dysfunction, diabetes, insulin resistance, and is likely a combination of both. The larger, less dense particles are clearly less associated with heart disease. Now, I need to be clear though, it's less associated. It's not zero association. It's less association. So I wouldn't say, you know, if your particles are large, you can completely ignore them. No, you still need to pay attention to them. But again, within the context of all the other risk factors, the metabolic health, um, triglycerides, HDL, blood sugar, insulin, blood pressure, you know, all those things, put it into context. But I'm going to be a lot more concerned about the smart par- small particles than I am about the larger particles. And interestingly, when you talk about small, small particles, if you start somebody on a statin, it's not going to help your small particles. They right. may actually go up. The total LDL may go down, but your small particles may go up, which is the perfect example of statin does not solve all problems. You still need to work with lifestyle to improve those small particles because the most important and effective intervention to change the small particles into bigger particles, in my experience, is low-carb lifestyles and regular exercise. That is what you can do to really have your best effort at changing those small particles into larger particles. Yeah, I'm glad you made that make that point because I had Dr. Robert Lustig on and, mm-hmm. and, and he touched on that, that the statins actually will, might affect the overall number and more so the large buoyant ones as opposed mm-hmm. to the ones that could have caused the damage, which is the small. Right, which doesn't mean in certain circumstances you don't want to also lower the large particles. Sure, sure. in some circumstances you do. You know, if we have patients with very high calcium scores and a family history of heart disease and um you know, some people have small particles, regardless of their metabolic health. And that setting, you just need to lower the overall number to try and improve risk and do everything else you can do with lifestyle to try and improve metabolic health and make sure that is on point too. I mean, sometimes that's the right intervention, but it's a very individualized thing. And um, our medical society, our medical practices are not really set up for individualized care. Unfortunately, they're They're definitely set up for guideline-based care, treat everybody like the quote-unquote average, treat everybody like the the same, pretty much like the middle group. Um, That's how a lot of medical practices are set up. And that's, I guess, good if you talk about population medicine, but not so good if you talk about individual medicine. And what I care about is, for me as a patient, is, you know, me individually, and for the patient I'm seeing at the moment, I care about them as an individual, not as a population. Yeah. So we talk about low carb and keto and, uh, this is definitely, you know, I don't like to put myself in necessarily camp, but I've probably been low carb for a while now and I just feel better on that. Mm -hmm. But you know, there's people who actually can probably, and I know, and this is one thing I love about your podcast is you have these differing opinions, come on and talk. Um, you might have a vegan and then you might have a carnivore come on and, and it's, it's fun to listen to those two differing opinions. Um, what would be, what would you say some of the, you know, biggest movers? I know you talked about exercise and low carb, but what are some of the other things that individuals can do to help improve their health as well? Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, I, I mentioned low carb, but again, low carb means different things, right? It does not mean everybody needs to be on a ketogenic diet. Certainly right. if you have type two diabetes, or if you have maybe even a mental health condition or a neurologic condition, or, you know, there are certain settings where a ketogenic diet is likely more beneficial than other versions of low carb, but to be on a moderate or liberal low carb diet, that's sort of high in protein and higher in fiber. Those can still be perfectly healthy diets for many people. Um, you know, different people have different levels of insulin resistance 
that may mean they want to start at a different level. But I think when you talk about the biggest markers, one of the fir first things you can do is, of course, stop the ultra processed foods and, um, and the quote unquote junk foods. But that's easy to say and a little bit harder to do, right? You can't just tell somebody to stop it, see you later, right? You need to structure a diet that's going to make them more likely to be successful with that type of inter intervention. And that's where low carb diets or I think higher protein diets can come into effect because this concept of satiation or satiety or feeling comfortably full and not hungry is so important from a practical standpoint, but so often ignored when people give dietary prescriptions. Um, so it's finding the right diet for somebody that's going to keep them full. And I love the data when you look at low carb diets that shows even for ad lib, eat as much as you want. They tend to eat less just spontaneously. That's a powerful statement. Same for high protein diets. They, send, they tend to just eat less spontaneously. And that's kind of magic. So I think that's one big key is finding the diet that works for you, that helps your hunger, gives you enough protein and nutrition and energy and helps you eat less. Then the other part is what's going to impact your metabolic health. And metabolic health is sort of a grab bag for um, basically, I think, hyperinsulinemia, insulin resistance, and it factors into triglycerides and HDL and blood pressure. All those things are interrelated. Frequently, that's going to be reducing the carbohydrates to help with that. And then exercise, you don't need to exercise to lose weight by any stretch, but it absolutely helps with losing the right kind of weight. Because when we're talking about weight loss, what I don't want is somebody losing a lot of weight, both fat mass and lean mass. Because then what happens if by chance they kind of fall off the wagon, so to speak, or they start gaining muscle back, or sorry, gaining weight back, the only weight you gain back is fat. You're not gonna gain muscle back most likely. So now you've done yourself a harm because you've lost muscle and fat and then just gained back fat. So you're worse off than when you started. So for me, healthy weight loss means maintaining your lean mass. And that's where exercise really comes into play. And I think first and foremost has to be some form of resistance training. I'm still a big fan of cardio. I'm a big fan of high intensity interval training, but I see it as like a three-legged stool with resistance training being the most important part of that stool because muscle mass is most important for metabolism as like a sink for blood sugar um, and to keep you functional and to keep you healthy um, for long terms, long time to come. Now, you know, that doesn't mean going to the gym and pumping iron and, you know, trying to look like Sean Baker or some of these, you know, guys who pump a lot of iron, but it means, it means stressing your muscles in some way, whether it's body weight exercises or with bands or whatever, some sort of regular resistance exercise. And then trying to combine that with also some sort of cardio, because studies are very clear that higher cardiorespiratory fitness and physical activity correlate with better health and longevity. So if you can combine all that, that's key. And then of course, there are lots of other things, you know, sleep and chronic stress are things we talk about a lot, um, but people don't necessarily prioritize a lot. And that's sort of, the, I think the hump we need to get over is um, the discussion part to the practical implementation part so that people are trying to get regular, consistent, restorative sleep. And people are taking time for themselves in our busy, you know, rush, rush world. It's very easy to not take time for yourself and not just have a moment of sort of quiet, um, reflection, relaxation, breathing, whatever works for you. I think all of those concepts are so important for long-term health. Yeah. I mean, you brought up a lot of great points and I'm glad you touched on sleep and stress. I think that's something that can get overlooked. I work with a lot of males and uh, middle-aged males and it's like, that's like 
sometimes I'll bring that up and they look at me like, what's, what's that all about? You know, like sleep and stress, you know, if you don't, if you're not getting adequate sleep, I mean, a lot of the other things, the pillars of health probably don't really won't, won't come into play as much. Um, so definitely I agree with you with that. What, um, just going back to touching on protein, cause I know, uh, listening to your podcast, you just, you just had, um, a couple guests on, um, one was, I think, a, maybe more of an advocate of animal protein. One of them was a little bit more of an advocate of like, uh, maybe like a vegan protein, um, mm -hmm. or a vegetarian protein. What did you learn mm -hmm. from that as far as, you know, quality and, you know, what's the most optimal way to get protein? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The statement that animal protein is higher quality protein is absolutely true. No question about it. Animal protein is higher quality protein than plant-based protein. But that doesn't mean you can't meet your protein goals with plant-based protein. You certainly can. Um, but if you're looking to do it, I think in the easiest way with the fewest calories and the fewest carbs, focusing on animal protein is, is the best way to go. If you prefer to eat plant protein, you don't want to eat animal protein. That's perfectly fine. You can still meet your your protein goals, and you can have the same muscle building, muscle maintaining effect as if you were eating animal protein. So it's not that animal protein is the only way to do it and the clear, better way to do it. No, plant protein will absolutely get you there. It's just different, right? It comes with more carbs. It comes with more calories. It requires a little, you know, mixing and matching requires a little more attention. And, um, but that's perfectly fine for people who want to do that. Right. So I think one of the biggest take-homes I, I learned is just that um, we have to be careful about how we say it, right? Animal protein is quote unquote, better, mm -hmm. more bioavailable has the complete, um, availability of all the essential amino acids in the right amount. Um, but that doesn't mean it's the only way to do it. Yeah. Um, which plant protein I, you know, it's interesting. Cause I used to be like a pescatarian and I remember having plant proteins for a while there. And I remember buying like hemp protein, uh, cause that got, mm -hmm. uh, that got sort of like a lot of good reviews regarding uh, a quality protein, but are there certain now I, now I don't, I'm, I actually more towards the animal based side. And I think that's actually helped yeah. my lifting. It's helped me put on muscle. Uh, sure. but I'm just curious, like if someone is on the plant side, are there certain plant proteins that they should maybe lean towards? Yeah. Well, from a complete protein standpoint, a muscle building standpoint, I think soy is the best. Yeah. Now soy comes with its own concerns. Certainly, you know, the majority of soy is GMO. So if that's important to you, you're going to really have to search for non-GMO soy. Um, there's a concern about maybe the estrogenic effects of soy. Well, it's got pro and anti-estrogen effects. The majority of the studies in humans don't show an issue, even though there's some mechanistic concerns. Maybe it's got to do with the frequency and the amount and sorts of things. So if it's, if you're having a lot of soy protein every day, that's a different scenario than someone who has it a few days a week as, as a type of protein. But so it's got its own issues. Um, unclear how important those are for most human intervention studies, but um, it is the most equivalent to animal protein. Now, beyond that, you just have to sort of mix and match your proteins um, and, you know, again, it's perfectly doable, like this, the old beans and rice, right? So, you know, whatever amino acids one is deficient in, you get from the other. So you get your full complement of nine amino acids. But if you're just getting your protein from pea protein, or you're just getting your protein from beans or whatever, then you're going to be deficient in some of the amino acids. So it is this sort of mixture of proteins that you have to do. But again, perfectly reasonable, as long as you have the knowledge base to do it, you have the time 
and the interest and the effort to put into it and perfectly reasonable to do. Okay. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting interview with, with sort of both sides of the, of the table there. Uh, what about, what about fasting when it comes to this? Is this something that you mm -hmm. implement into your life or that, um, I know obviously with diet doctor, they, you know, it's, it's actually a great resource. I use, I've used it just to check out and, you know, the, some great articles and blogs and things like that. Um, but what role do you think fasting has for individuals? Yeah. So fasting first, I think you have to talk about separate fasting to time restricted eating and then longer fast. So time restricted eating is, I mean, really it depends how you talk about it. Some people say 12 hour fast is time restricted eating. To me, that just shows how backwards we are. You know, a 12 hour overnight fast should just be normal. That should not <laughs> have a name associated with it. Right. I think if you're eating, if you're having a shorter than a 12 hour window, that should have a name of like, like, I don't know, hyper eating or frequent <laughs> eating or something uh, that should be the one with the name, not the normal 12 hour overnight fast. Cause that's what we're sort of meant to do. Right. Um, you know, beyond that, whether you go 16, eight, 18, six, OMAD, they all come with potential benefits and potential downfalls. And I think that's, what's so interesting about some of the literature we've seen come out recently around time restricted eating. This question of, is it just a better way to reduce calories? And on the one hand, the answer might be, well, who cares? What if it is? Because if it is a better way for some people, then you're being successful and it's helping you. Because like I said, a big part is addressing hunger, right? Being able to get adequate nutrition, reduce your hunger, and help in a healthy way, reduce your calories. So if time-restricted eating helps you do that, that's a huge victory. And if it helps you better than just trying to, you know, across the board, reduce your calories, that's a huge victory. Then it is that it works and it's perfect. Right. Some people have the opposite reaction, which is kind of interesting. So if you go back a couple of years to a study um, by Dr. Ethan Weiss and his colleagues about time-restricted eating, the time-restricted eating group actually ate more calories during mm. the day. And I see this in my practice. It happens with some people that they feel this urge to kind of binge or to kind of make up for lost calories or feel like they need to eat more. And they actually end up eating more and having more cravings. Mm. So that's where this personalization comes in. If you're in that camp, time-restricted eating isn't right for you yet. May not always you know, be that way, but yet, if you're not in that camp, yeah, then time-restricted eating can be really helpful. And theoretically, you know, lower insulin, um, this concept of autophagy, it's still kind of unclear how long you need to be fasting to tap into autophagy, but it certainly makes sense that if you could try to have periods without food intake, it certainly makes sense that it's helpful. Again, as long as there are no downsides to it. But like anything, you can take a good thing too far. So one thing I am concerned about is people who eat like OMAD every day, one meal a day, every day. And that's because, you know, basically protein, your protein demands for the day are still the same, whether you eat three meals or whether you eat one meal. So if you're, you know, a, a guy trying to put on weight, trying to get 160 grams of protein per day, that's pretty hard to do in one meal. That right. is really hard to do in one meal. Now, some people can do it. I couldn't, I can tell you that I couldn't get 160 <laughs> grams of protein in one meal. So in that case, I, I get a little concerned about pushing the time restricted eating too much, too long, too frequent. Again, I hate to keep saying it, but individual individualization comes into play. I just like people to know that it's, you know, to know the potential downsides and the potential concerns. Now, when you get into longer fasts, you know, so many people have had great success with longer fasts for um, helping their blood sugar, you know, and their insulin levels getting off uh, diabetes medications. I'm a little bit more concerned with those because if you are on medications, you definitely need to do it in conjunction with a physician who can help you um, change your medications around and, and show you what to be cautious about. 
Um, again, then there's this whole world of longevity. Do longer fasts help with longevity, like five-day fasts every quarter? And the answer is maybe, right? It's so hard to show human longevity data. You have to extrapolate from animals and use surrogates in humans. So it's certainly possible. Um, so in my practice with my patients, maybe half of them I have doing longer fasts every quarter and half of them I say, nope, not right for you. Don't do it. Um, that's where working with a clinician who has some experience is really helpful. So I see the benefits of time-restricted eating. I see the benefits of longer fasting, um, but we have to be aware it's not, not the right intervention for everybody. It's a tool, just like anything. And sorry, one more point is yeah. the baseline diet, I think, makes a difference. So in, in the most recent study that came out, I just did a video for it on our Diet Doctor YouTube channel. They were following a 50% carbohydrate, you know, 25% fat diet and using time-restricted eating. Well, I think the results might be very different if they were following a you know, 15 or 10 or 5% carbohydrate diet and a 30% protein diet, right? Like I think those findings would be very different. And I would love to see that head-to-head -head comparison of time-restricted eating in those two groups, which hasn't been done. Mm. Um, but that would be really interesting because there's certainly mechanistic reasons to think that maybe it would be different. Yeah. Yeah. No, you bring up a lot of good points regarding fasting. I was actually just interviewed last night and, we, and I talked about OMAD a little bit and, you know, I typically have two meals a day. And one of the main reasons why I do that is because getting in the amount of protein that I want to get in, um, uh, in one meal, it just seems like uh, it's a lot like, although I will say, I don't really track my macros much. I'm going to start doing it just a little bit more, just maybe for like a week because I eat the same stuff. So it's like, if I track it for a few days, I know where I'm at and I, I've never yeah. been like a big calorie counter either, but I was, just, I'm just going to do it for a few days and see where I'm at. Um, but regarding, um, getting enough protein in, what would you say? I, I know you just had your interviews regarding protein quality. What would you say? Like the, you know, you hear different amounts thrown out there. It probably depends yeah. on, you know, if the individual is looking to, to grow more, if there are more of just like a, uh, you know, maybe like a catabolic state, uh, what would you say, how much protein would you say would be ideal? Yeah. So for the average person trying to, you know, lose weight in a healthy way, maintain lean muscle, lose body fat, improve their metabolic health. I think the 1.5 grams per kilo is a, is a really good starting point. Um, you know, it can go up to two, maybe down to 1.2 for some people, but really shooting for that 1.5 grams per kilo and the per kilo of kind of reference body weight or ideal body weight, whatever you want to say, we have some, some guides on the diet doctor website to guide people about this, but based on your kind of based on your height, estimate what your weight is, not your current weight. So if you're like 40, 50 pounds overweight, you don't want to use your current weight necessarily to, to gauge your um, your protein goals. But so I like that 1.5 grams per kilo, which, you know, for the average woman is like 80 to 90 grams. And the average man is like 120, 130 grams, somewhere around there. But of course, with individual variation based on how active you are, how tall you are, um, your age, your gender, right. uh, you know, another number of other factors kind of come into play for that. And what about um, just switching gears a little bit? Uh, what about keto diets? Uh, as far as like in mental health, I noticed you, you interviewed mm -hmm. Dr. Chris Palmer. What did, what did you learn about yeah. that? I know, I know that's been used uh, for a while now. Yeah. And that is a really growing field um, yeah. that I'm really excited about, you know, cause I, I think I have to be honest when it comes to healthy weight loss, metabolic health, keto diets are definitely helpful, 
but you can also achieve very similar results with moderate low carb diets that are well constructed. When it comes to the brain, that's where I think higher ketones and actual ketogenic diet is going to be far superior than moderate low carb diets or liberal low carb diets or otherwise sort of just like quote unquote healthy diets, because this is where the ketones seem to have like their, I don't know, their magical power, you can call it right there <laughs> to have this added benefit about the way the brain uses ketones. And so I'm really excited about that. And Dr. Shabani Sethi and, and Dr. Chris Palmer, um, they're really sort of on the forefront of the research and furthering this, this whole field of metabolic psychiatry, um, which, which I find so fascinating. Yeah. And actually there's a, there's a podcast, um, called the bipolar cast, mm. which is really interesting. It, it's just sort of, it's a new podcast. It's on YouTube. Um, and it, it's people talking about using lifestyle to improve their bipolar disease. And the, the stories yeah. are incredible. I mean, you know, just the drugs piling up, piling up to try and control their disease and still having problems and not being able to get it under control, going to a ketogenic diet and boom, the drugs start coming off, maybe not completely, but certainly lowering. And that's so important because psychiatric drugs affect your brain, right? They can affect them in beneficial ways and with significant side effects. Mm -hmm. um, so anything that you can use to treat psychiatric conditions that doesn't have those negative side effects is really reassuring and, and, and uh, welcome for most patients. So, um, you know, bipolar, potentially schizophrenia, um, even severe depression. And then of course, things like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, um, traumatic brain injury, so anything neurologic, it really does seem that the ketogenic diets can be beneficial. And the, you know, maybe the research was kind of teetering along for a little bit, but it seems like we're at this inflection point right now where the research is really starting to take off and is really starting to get adopted. And I love that there is now a metabolic psychiatry clinic mm. um, that, you know, five years ago, if you would have used those words, people would have been like, what's that? That's not a thing. <laughs> yeah, now it's a thing and it's an important thing and it's a growing thing. So yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, that, that's, that's some great research that's being done. And I had, uh, I interviewed Dr. Uh, Diagostino and uh, we touched on that as well. Cause he's, he's, he's um, does a ton of research around ketones and how they affect the brain. What was, what was the one thing you learned? Like if someone's listening to this, uh, you know, you hear keto diet and there's many forms, I guess, would you say of keto diets mm -hmm. in a sense? I mean, we're talking high fat, moderate protein, low carb, right? Um, is there anything else that individuals should know or that you got from just doing those interviews? Yeah. So I guess a couple of things. I mean, when you look at the, a lot of the, the literature goes back to the seizure literature. Um, cause that's where ketogenic diets were sort of first used. And traditionally it's been this four to one keto diet, meaning your, your ratio of fat to protein plus carbs is four to one. So a very high fat, lower protein keto diet. But now Dr. Eric Kossoff and others have done studies of with a modified Adkins diet, which is a lower fat, higher protein. So still not low fat by any means, right? So instead of like, you know, 85% fat, maybe it's 70% fat. Now the protein's going up to like 20, 25% or something like that. But that was still beneficial for seizure control. So hmm. maybe there is this a broader spectrum of ketogenic diets. As long as you're still in ketosis, your ketone levels are still reasonable. You know, you can play with the diet and have a little more flexibility to still have beneficial impact on neurologic conditions. And, um, you know, look, I'm not a researcher. I'm not on the, the forefront of this. I'm just following along as others are doing the research. And I find it really interesting. And, you know, you mentioned um, Dr. Dom Diagostino. So he, him and his colleagues, they're, they're putting on the Metabolic Health Summit, which actually, as we're recording this right now, sort of the end of April, it's going to be 
next week. Oh. Um, so I don't know when this is coming out, but so it's gonna be next week. And it's really a dedicated conference for um, ketogenic therapies, a big focus of which is on um, mental health and neurological function. Um, and then there's a pre-conference, which is focusing specifically on um, metabolic psychiatry put on by the Bazuki group and um, the uh, Millikan Foundation. And these are, you know, they're basically um, philanthropic foundations um, led by very well-meaning and um, very involved individuals trying to help further this field. So it's a really exciting time. Wow. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so um, that's a whole week of just like, that's a big conference. Where is that in? Is that in? Um... It's going to be in Santa Barbara. Santa yeah. Barbara. Okay. Very cool. Um, what is your, and so your... people can still join if they want or join <laughs> virtually as well. And just put that plug in. There's a, there's a virtual, um, way to access it too. Yeah. And, uh, what would you say, what are your thoughts regarding, I know this is, there's maybe not even a right answer to this, but you know, you have this, this calorie camp versus like the, mm -hmm. the carb insulin model. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm sure, you know, I, we could probably talk to her blue in the face and go back and forth on this, but um, you know, cause you'll have Dr. Jason, I, you know, I've had Dr. Jason Fung and he, you know, he's obviously all about lowering insulin and Dr. Ben Beekman and people like that. And then you have other people who are like, well, you know, calories do play a role, uh, more than we think. And what do, what are your thoughts regarding that? Yeah. I mean, look, I think it's clear calories play a role, but that's very different than saying all calories are the same. And all you have to do is lower your calories and you're fine. Like those are, those are, are not the same thing to say calories play a role. At the same time, carbs and insulin play a role, but that's not to say that carbohydrate insulin model explains obesity and it is the one unifying hypothesis that we need to address. That's not true either, right? There are plenty of examples um, contrary to the carb insulin model. So I think, again, the problem is when we try and boil it down to one thing and say, this is the one thing, instead, you know, acknowledge that we are complicated people, human beings. We are not just emotionally and psychologically, we're physically and physiologically very complicated with a lot of processes going on. So how much you eat matters and the quality and what you eat matters and when you eat matters, right? So I guess the other part about the time-restricted eating thing I didn't mention, whether you eat your calories more in the morning or in the evening, like that makes a difference, right? So there's there are a number of different factors. And so absolutely, um, insulin plays a role, absolutely. But just lowering your carbs um, isn't the only way and the 100% successful way uh, to lose weight and improve your health. So I think we have to recognize that. And so I think the key is finding ways to successfully long-term lower your calories in ways that also help you maintain your lean mass, not be hungry and lower your insulin. And that's the key. And, you know, the more pieces you put in the puzzle, the more complicated you get. But I think that, you know, you, you, the dietary structure sort of remains the same, right? Or even no matter how many pieces you put on it, the dietary structure remains the same. Make sure you're getting adequate protein. Make sure you're avoiding the hedonic foods that trigger more cravings and, and trigger you to eat more. You know, make sure your the your carbs that you're focusing on are the higher fiber, lower energy density carbs. Um, and then use your fat to help you enjoy your meal because we have to enjoy our meals. Otherwise we're not going to eat it. Uh, but don't think of fat as like a free food that you can just pile on as much as you want. That can work really well for ketogenic diets in the beginning. But I think over time, it sort of catches up with people. And that's when we see keto diets, you know, people start to stall or even gain more weight or, or whatnot. So I, I think that's the key. Prioritize your protein, limit, limit the foods that, that trigger your craving, 
Um, focus your carbs on the higher quality, higher fiber carbs and, and use fat. Don't, don't avoid fat. Don't think fat is bad. You know, eat your fat, naturally fatty foods, um, and then add fat to enjoy your meals. Um, just don't go overboard and think of it as a free food. I, I think that's the structure that if more people adhered to that general, those general principles, we'd be in a much better position than we are now in terms of, you know, obesity, type two diabetes, metabolic disease. Yeah, no, you, you lay it out really simplistically and well, I mean, uh, everyone's, I, I know, like you mentioned, everyone has to sort of do their soul own, like self-experimentation on themselves, right. And find, you know, that sort of that, what works for them, whether no matter what camp they fall into, one of the things that I, you know, we talked about fasting. One of the things I, I will say I like about fasting is sort of the black and white simplicity of it. And, yeah. and, you know, it gives you structure too, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if you know, that you're eating within this certain time period, because I think a lot of bad habits can happen in the evening. And so yeah. like, I, I just think one great tip I like to use for a lot of clients is, you, you know, pick a time when you're just going to close the kitchen and, and cause that'll just help you get into a fasted state. It'll, you'll avoid late night eating. And, mm -hmm. you know, then you got your overnight fast. And if you want to break it and have breakfast, that's fine. But, um, I don't know. I just think there's something to having that structure on a daily basis. Um, what did you learn? I know, you know, you had Dr. Uh, Panda on who's big and who talks a, a lot about obviously, uh, early time restricted eating and, and has studies around that. What, what did you learn from, from Dr. Panda? Yeah. I mean, he is, he's such a wealth of knowledge and, and the research he's been doing for, you know, decades, really, yeah. he's been on this topic for such a long time and really sort of, the, I think on the podcast, I called him the godfather. <laughs> I'll have, to get, I'll have to get that, him but. on. I'll have to get him on. Yeah. Yeah. And he's going to be a metabolic health summit too. So I'm looking forward to connecting with him again, but mm -hmm. just the role of circadian rhythm is so important that not only does our brain have circadian rhythms, but our individual cells have circadian rhythms and, and the way that plays into um, this concept of what is healthy, what is a healthy lifestyle that we really can't ignore their circadian rhythm. Um, and, and how it's something that most people don't really pay that much attention to. Like when he did the, when he collected the data of people using the app and just putting in when they were eating and when, they, you know, it was sort of like all over the map. They're really, you know, people just don't really by themselves pay much attention to that. So um, I just, yeah, that's, I think the one takeaway is, is we do really have to pay attention to the circadian rhythm. And, and I love the point that you made, like one, there's, there's eating within a time window to, to be more consistent with our circadian rhythm, but two, like how many people at nine o'clock at night are snacking on broccoli, cauliflower, <laughs> steak, and, and salmon, right? No, yeah. that's not what you eat at nine o'clock at night. So there's also the, the concept of where the quality really degrades that you need to, you know, you can really benefit doubly by cutting it off both to be more in line with circadian rhythm. And two, because you've automatically increased the overall quality of your diet by getting rid of that 9 PM to 11 PM snacking. Right. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, most people aren't, aren't snacking. <laughs> there's, there's snacking on hyper palatable foods that will just lead to more hunger. Right. And yeah. yeah, so nothing happens, Pat. Yeah. So I, I, I think just picking a time to just like, I like you cut it off and you know, you're done and, um, do, do with most of your clients, are you, are you having them adhere, adhere to like, let's just say two meals a day or, you know, no snacking and things like that. Yeah. It's really variable. Like I think the yeah. no snacking part is pretty important. Um, yeah. you know, to get out of this concept of eating five or six times a day, that's pretty important, but you know, a, a lot of my patients just do better eating three meals a day. And some yeah. of them do much better eating two meals a day. And the important part is finding out who's who, 
um, right. and not making them think, you know, people think like, oh man, I'm, I'm not time restricted eating. I'm really not helping myself. I'm not doing it right. It's like, no, that's not the case at all. You can still have tremendous progress and improvements without time restricted eating. You got to find out if it's right for you. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, this was great, uh, Dr. Sure. And, uh, I always ask this question, even though I feel like you answered it like 10 times, but, um, I'll ask it either way. What, what one tip, maybe you'll think of something else. What one tip would you give an individual that's looking to get their body back? Let's say they're middle-aged 60, 50, and they're looking to get their body back to what it once was, uh, maybe in their thirties. What one tip would you give that individual? Yeah. I mean, it's, it is hard to give one <laughs> tip, but you know, yeah, I would just have to sum up by saying, you know, eat better and exercise better. And what does that mean? Well, it means prioritize protein, avoid the hedonic foods, you know, focus on the high fiber carbs. Um, don't be afraid of fat, use it to enjoy your food and, and start doing some sort of resistance training. That combination, if we could get most of the population doing that, um, we would be in a much better position. And then at the same time, recognize that sleep and stress and social connections and life enjoyment play a role too. So don't be so hyper-focused on these things that it's like, you know, bringing you down in a stressful situation. You got to find a way to fit in your lifestyle where you can still enjoy your life and um, enjoy everything else and enjoy your family and your loved ones. Cause that's equally as important. Yeah. So that's not one thing. That's a big long. <laughs> so that was like 10 list, things, but... but that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, this was great. I, I appreciate like everything you do with uh, as being a cardiologist and sort of spreading this message. I think it's so important. And um and just with your podcast at Diet Doctor, I love listening to that as well. So um, yeah, I appreciate you coming on and uh, thanks for sharing so much knowledge. Yeah, my pleasure, Brian. Thanks for having me on today. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine and I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.